0: Welcome to the Davos Man episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello, hello. I've been loving your newsletter. You are now actually putting out a newsletter every morning, and it's amazing. What's the name of the newsletter?
1: Axios Markets, please subscribe. It's me and and co-writer Matt Phillips, who is delightful. And sometimes Neil Irwin writes for us. It's like, it's really good. And it's free.
0: So Matt Phillips and Neil Irwin uh are... they used to work for a terrible place called the new york times now they work for this wonderful place called axios the new york times is basically it has one
2: reporter left at this point mr peter goodman <laughs> welcome thank you very much for having me I'm, I'm delighted to be the last person with the lights on at the sad new york times. <laughs> so peter introduce yourself who are you and and what brings you onto this show I'm the global economics correspondent. Uh, I'm based in New York, and I've written a book called "Davos Man: How the Billionaires Devoured the World."
0: So, if you live in the world, you should you should listen to this um, this issue. You will discover how you have been devoured. Actually, even if you live in
2: other worlds, because you know Bezos is going to space now.
0: Exactly, we are all like Jonah. We have been. We are in the belly of the billionaire, I mean, we don't even realize it. Um, we are going to talk about Larry Fink, who's one of the classic Davos men and and his business model over at BlackRock. We are going to talk a bit about some of the other billionaires. We are also going to talk about Satya Nadella. I'm not sure whether he's a billionaire or not, but he's the CEO of Microsoft. He's very much a davos man and he just announced that he was buying activision blizzard for 69 billion dollars so we're going to talk about that deal we are going to talk about the fiasco that is the whole 5g rollout because it's hilarious we're going to have a slate plus segment on peloton because that's kind of funny too it's all coming up on slate money
3: But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to Slate.com slash Amicus Live for tickets.
0: So let's jump into this. This week is the week of the great Davos show. I have recorded Slate money from Davos on multiple occasions. It is always, I believe the technical term is a clusterfuck. It involves handing over envelopes of cash to random functionaries of Eurovision at the bottom of the hill and trying to get them to hand over what passes for a recording studio, even though there's no soundproofing at all. I feel like the new way of recording Davos shows, which is where everyone is just sitting around at home drinking cups of tea is much more copacetic, especially when there's no actual Davos because it was canceled. I mean, this is the best possible Davos, right, Peter?
2: Well, the fact that we don't have to put crampons on our boots and go through security 17 times a day as if we're you know, simulating going through LaGuardia Airport uh, 17 times in 24 hours, that is certainly very pleasing. The food is much better at home. Uh, the lack of, uh, as Kara Swisher put it to me the other day, rich people walking around licking other rich people. Yes, it's it's much <laughs> much nicer uh, to contemplate the snow uh, here at home.
0: And and so now it's going to be, it, it is going to happen apparently in May, but the whole business calendar, it's got this sort of January focus. So you get things like the Oxfam inequality report, which always comes out the week of Davos. And you get things like the Larry Fink annual letter, which always comes out the week of Davos. And you have things like the Edelman Trust Barometer, which always comes out the week of Davos. And even when Davos is cancelled, all of these things still come out as scheduled. And I really wanted to talk to you about the Larry Fink letter, because Larry Fink is is one of the main characters in your book. And he doesn't come out particularly glowing and covered in halos and light in your book. So explain who he is and
2: and what the problem is with him. Sure. So Larry Fink is the world's largest asset manager. He has vacuumed up pension funds from around the world, university endowments. He's managing more than $10 trillion. You heard that right, $10 trillion. And that gives him almost godlike powers of observation, over the movements of money, he's a genius by all accounts. I mean, he he's worked essentially as the advisor to Uncle Sam, not just after the 2008 financial crisis, but uh, now during the crisis in the first wave of the pandemic. I mean, people trust his counsel because he actually knows what's going on, and he he built out a surveillance system called Aladdin. Uh, that's uh, his attempt to keep tabs on you know. Unexpected changes in in, in markets, uh, increased uh, borrowing costs, uh, potential crises before they happen, and people pay good money for that. I mean, he he's now selling Aladdin to other financial institutions that collectively manage more than twenty trillion dollars. So this is somebody who you know has a great deal to say about markets, and that's why everybody takes seriously this annual letter to shareholders. But he's positioned himself. As the hero of this thing called stakeholder capitalism, this idea that, as its champions would tell you, Milton Friedmanism is dead. It's no longer just about corporate executives being as greedy as possible, maximizing returns. And through that, the magic of the markets will supposedly trickle down to the rest of us, something that has in real life happened zero times. Uh, But we're done with that conversation. The new conversation is about catering to stakeholders, the environment, labor, uh, local communities. And so in Larry's most recent letter, he doubles down on stakeholder cap- capitalism because he, he's getting attacked uh, by the right. Uh, you know, the state of Texas uh, has uh, just reacted uh, to his latest uh, talk about climate change and the potential for pulling funds out of companies uh, that don't move fast enough to address climate change. So he's doubled down and said, look, you know, this is not woke. This is real capitalism, but it's about getting ahead of the curve in terms of what we as corporate managers need to do.
0: So, so he's saying something which seems uncontroversial, which is that like, if you don't position yourself as a company to be well-positioned in a, in a world of climate change, then that's a sort of existential risk for your company, and I don't necessarily want to be invested in that.
2: Look, Davos man's great at words, and Larry Fink's great at words. And I mean, there's no question it makes all the sense in the world that if you're going to invest in the mortgage-backed securities market, and Larry Fink actually pioneered the mortgage-backed security back when he was at First Boston, then yeah, you want to know, like, is a flood going to come that's not built into everybody's models that's going to wipe out the value of real estate pledged as collateral? That's all great. you know. He, and he talks about the need... Uh, to in this most recent letter to you know respond to the fact that work has changed during the pandemic, employers uh, have to deal with different expectations from employees. All this stuff's perfectly sensible. But think about the stakeholders that are perpetually missing from this. There's a lot of talk of employees. There's no talk of labor unions. Um uh, there's actually this incredible talk. I, I fished out this one quote about government. We need governments to provide clear pathways and a consistent taxonomy for sustainability policy, regulation, and disclosure across markets. Yeah, you know, who could argue with that? Of course we do. Well, you know, left unsaid is that BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, belongs to the Business Roundtable. The Business Roundtable has lobbied aggressively against regulations, helped deliver Trump's package of tax cuts worth $1.5 trillion, lavished on people like Larry Fink. You know, that diminishes the ability of government uh, to do what it needs to do, including collect taxes, including regulate effectively he's part of the u.s chamber of commerce uh, and and he has departed uh, you know very clearly from his own stated principles uh, especially on the environment so so okay so basically your your problem with
0: with with larry fink is a kind of that there might be a hypocrisy there that like he, he might be saying a certain number of words and the words might all be well and good but that like you know He's also a rapacious capitalist, and we can't trust him to,
2: to save the world. The world has rapacious capitalists, right? That's fine. That's why we need regulators. Regulators. It's worse than that. He's actually, like other Davos men, like Mark Benioff, who said at Davos last year that CEOs are the real heroes of the pandemic. They're positioning themselves as the saviors. They're essentially saying, hey, we've got this. We don't need labor unions. We don't We don't need regulations. We don't need taxes. That's just money squandered on bureaucrats who aren't helping us. We can take care of of life's problems. And so it's not merely hypocrisy. Look, everyone's a hypocrite if you really look at people's records carefully. It's that he as he is essentially propagating this idea that government doesn't need to do its job. While meanwhile, you know, BlackRock is one of the largest investors in JBS, the world's largest meat packer, which is clear-cutting the Amazon to expand beef production.
0: Uh, okay, so I want to like address that because this is one of this is my my thing about Larry Fink is that there seems to be two general views of Larry Fink. One, one is that he is, like the Davos view, which is that he's this far-sighted man who controls $10 trillion and is terribly important and can help, you know, what's the word? Improve the state of the world, to use the, the slogan of Davos. And then the other one is that he's actually uh, making it harder to improve the state of the world because of everything you're saying, that he's... he's um, uh, you know, making it harder for governments to regulate, and and he's part of this kind of um, laissez-faire subtext to Davos, which has proved extremely harmful. And and my view of Larry Fink is actually neither of those, which is that roughly seventy-five percent of the money that he manages, he has no ability to actually. Choose where it's invested in at all. It's all passive. It's ETFs and index funds and iShares I- well, and just that just kind to of stuff. I just cut you
1: off because I saw you tweeting about that, and like, just to emphasize, twenty five percent of ten trillion dollars is an awful lot of money. Regardless, it's two and a half like,
0: trillion dollars. It's it's like you know, it's it's smaller than Pimco. You know, it's um,
1: and we do know that companies make moves based on what this man says. Like he wants people to. We do. D- I don't think we do. There's like an there's an academic paper I can put in the show notes that shows like when he says disclose climate risks in your filings, companies actually just start doing stuff. Like academics have tracked it. I don't know if, if this is effective to disclose the risks, but but, but like, just, just, to finish, just
0: just influential. So 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 just to finish my thought here, like one of the super interesting things about the Larry Fink letter this year is that he ends it by saying, "What I really want to do is empower the owners of." the capital so the 10 trillion dollars that he controls yeah he gets he has a certain amount of control over it although as i say for 75 percent of it really not that much people want to invest in the s&p 500 they give it to him to invest in the s&p 500 he doesn't have any discretion about that and what he's saying is that for ultimately all of those investors he doesn't even want to vote those shares he wants those beneficiaries that the actual beneficiary beneficial owners of the capital to decide how they want to vote i mean you know proxy votes and that kind of thing and really voting is the one place place where he has power the one place where he has power is to say I, I have 10 it. trillion i have 10 trillion dollars and so i can if i don't like you i can vote against you and it's true that he hasn't used it which is one you know extra mark in the column of like he's actually pretty otos But even like if he kind of keeps that bazooka in his back pocket kind of thing and kind of walks into a CEO's office and says, I'd like you to disclose more climate, you know, the CEO knows that as you say, like he owns seven, eight percent of more or less any company that you want to mention. And so he's a major shareholder, he's a long term shareholder, he's the kind of shareholder that you want to keep happy. And so you do these things to keep those big shareholders happy. But if he gives up even having the ability to control how those shares are voted, he just becomes like a, a super thin intermediary with no control over where the money is invested.
2: I think you're missing a couple of big things. First of all, he's given cover to people like the Saudi monarchy. I mean, he's a huge investor in Aramco. He's helping gather capital for pipelines that Aramco's building. He shows up at Davos in the desert, right? I mean, this this event not long after the Khashoggi murder. Uh, I mean, this is this is a pretty nice laundering of image for people who need it and and a clear sign that you know it's not going to cost you any money that you murdered a Washington Post columnist. Moreover. He's the largest player in the International Institute of Finance which is the lobby shop for every financial institution on earth and plays a very strong role in policy on emerging market debt. Now there is a massive debt crisis in 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 the developing world where you have countries in the middle of a pandemic, you know Zambia, Ghana, Pakistan that are actually cutting they're spending on things like healthcare in the middle of a pandemic because they have to pay back people like Larry Fink. Larry Fink goes into Argentina and he actually heads the largest consortium of bondholders who are furious that they backed Macri. That they, I mean, Larry Fink personally bought the Macri story that this was the end of populism in Argentina, that Argentina was going to become, you know, this normal, fiscally responsible company, and he was a leader in funneling, you know, hundred billion dollars into Argentine bonds. And this is not the old days of you know the peso crisis in Mexico in the eighties, where you know it's just a bunch of it's Citibank and a bunch of other banks. They can get in a room. They can say how big a hair haircut are we going to take to get this emergency behind us? Larry Fink has gotten. You know, school teachers' pensions in the north of England. He's gotten firefighters in Ohio, and their savings are now in Argentine debt. And he's going to have a hard time telling them that he's lost their money on emerging market debt. And he understands that Argentina is merely the first of many countries around the globe where debt has to be worked out. He personally turns the screws to the Argentine government to sweeten the deal by a couple pennies on the dollar. Uh, at the same time that he's championing stakeholder capitalism, I mean that's that 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 is power that he uses. At the same time that he will tell you, you know, if he's asked, uh, well, how come you can't? If 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 this stakeholder capitalism is real and you care about the S and ESG, why can't you cut a break to a country where poverty soaring, where people are diving into dumpsters for their dinner? And you know he will say through the IIF, well, you know fiduciary responsibility. What you're saying, oh, it's mostly passive money. It's not our money. We're just managing. So he talks every which way depending upon the situation.
1: One thing I thought was interesting was the brilliance. I don't know about the brilliance of this man's investing acumen, and I don't really understand the Aladdin piece. Did he see the financial crisis coming? Like I don't get that. If his software was so good,
2: that's a very but good question. One
1: thing. But the the thing I wanted to to note is just the brilliance of his rhetoric here, positioning himself as a woke capitalist, and like purposely putting that line in the letter. It it makes him seem like he's not what Peter is saying at all, and it and it makes like these Republicans in Congress crazy, and 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 makes them attack him as a liberal essentially. So it's it's like a way he obscures what he's doing on like this like other level that's almost insane to comp- contemplate. And I guess it's what kind of Davos does more broadly. It makes all these folks seem super liberal and left and socially conscious when they're doing the exact opposite. And all these people on the right just buy it and attack them. It's it's like, it, it hurts my brain. I think that's
2: actually strengthening for Davos, man.
0: Are
1: yeah. You,
2: are you saying that that, like, it's
0: good for... Blackstone and Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse and all of these big financial institutions to be attacked by the Republicans for being too woke, um, because it makes the liberals think, well, they can't be that bad if they're being attacked by Republicans.
1: I think so, yeah. It, It obscures the relationship between Republicans and moneyed interests, and it also kind of aligns the money interests with the left and with liberals without liberals or the left having to think about the other stuff that Peter has written a book about. You know what I mean? It, 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 it like screws up I, I I
2: buy that I analysis because I mean, my whole argument about stakeholder capitalism is it's a way of checking the box that we're taking care of the big issues of the day, like climate change. While in truth, Larry Fink is an enabler of the status quo, which is true of everyone at the world economic forum, you know, committed to improving the state of the world, connoting change. These are the biggest beneficiaries of the status quo. And in terms of how they spend their money on lobbying, where they deliver their capital, it's all about perpetuating the status quo and their own privileges. So yeah, it's great if the state of Texas is taking shots at Larry Frank and saying, Don't, you know, don't threaten to divest from fossil fuel companies. Hey, look, you know, these people are mad at me. So I must be on the right side of climate change. While in fact, I'm helping Saudi Aramco get more fossil fuels out of the ground. Um, and squeezing poor countries to pay pennies on the dollar. Although
0: the w- I will say, apropos the, the Texas thing, that Fink has been pretty explicit about not threatening to divest. Like, divestment is not one of the tools that he's pointed to in his arsenal. He's, he's always been, you know, on the side of, like, engagement and we want to talk to management and get them to change the way they run the company and what good would it do if we were to sell our shares to someone else the company would still be doing what the company would be doing and like you can argue both sides of that one but ultimately i think if you want to change a company then having no shares in it is going to make it harder to change the company than if you do have shares in it
2: right oh i think that's a fair read uh, but you know, at the end of the day, we've got to see what change actually occurs, and and he has intimated in the past. I mean, now he goes out of his way to say we're not talking about divestment. We need the intelligence of people running fossil fuel companies to they're part of the solution. In the past, he has he in previous letters he has intimated you know if you don't get right on climate change, the markets will deprive you of capital, and he has held out the possibility of shareholder votes that then environmentalists complain never actually right. happened. No, no, so the, the, the
0: absolutely. Well, no, no, it didn't. I mean, it happened with Exxon. We have seen it. Yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah, in the last 18 months.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
2: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop hospitals, factories, schools and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done.
1: At Granger, we're here for you
2: with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones
0: who get it done. I want to talk about Microsoft. I want I really want to talk about this one because it's a great like encapsulation of everything that we've talking been talking about we have a scandal ridden company with its share price in the toilet on the grounds of exactly what you're talking about the the social and governance failures and I'm talking of course about Activision Blizzard the video game developer and what happens but this like big boring megalith microsoft comes along and announces that it's buying it for billion. Emily, I know you have opinions on this one.
1: Okay, so this is a really, really big deal. Um, Microsoft's biggest deal ever. And the biggest, I think, video game deal ever. Um, Interesting, the two biggest video game deals ever occurred this month in January, so it's a very big deal. It means all kinds of things for video gaming. The only reason it's happening, the only reason Microsoft was able to buy Activision, is because Activision CEO founder Bobby Kotick behaved so badly, <laughs> which I think is is weird. That like Mike, so in in July and then in the fall, there are all these allegations about Kotick as the CEO of Activision. He basically oversaw like. Rampant sexual harassment, women were underpaid, mistreated, propositioned by executives, like all this bad stuff. There's rape allegation even, um, and allegedly Kotick-like. Knew about it all, never told the board. And when all this comes out, the stock price, like you said, just totally falls off the cliff. Everyone's very upset. And Microsoft, which had been trying to buy this company for a long time because it owns really popular games like Call of Duty and World of Warcraft, was like, now's our chance. And they go to Activision, which wants to make a change but doesn't want to get rid of Kotick because he's been there from the beginning. And they're like, this is our chance like, to get out from under all this bad stuff. So now we have a deal. And it just, I was just thinking this morning how like <sighs> everyone was upset about Me Too back in 2017. Like it was going to be so bad for executives and companies and all this. But really, like it's all fine. Like Microsoft is going to do great here. Satya Nadella wants to become the Netflix, wants the company to become the Netflix of gaming. It's good. That's what's going to happen. Like he's going to benefit. Microsoft's going to benefit. Maybe there'll be some justice for the women who are harassed and the employees who work at, activision who knows bobby kotick is going to get paid um like 293 million dollars he's expected to leave the company once the deal closes in like a year but he's gonna get a massive massive golden parachute um and i don't actually think that they're going to be able to like take any of that back or anything although there's some you know shareholders upset
0: yeah i mean i've seen i've seen like the you know the woke capitalists come out and say he, sh- he shouldn't get this massive payout but like morally speaking you're right legally speaking like you know as you said he's he basically has found a status in this company he was the one who kind of um, bought it out of bankruptcy and built it up to what it is he like owns equity in the company and if someone is buying that equity the way that you know fungible equity works is you wind up making a lot of money and you have a contract like i would love it if there were a way to punish him financially for the Um, you know, lacks oversight that he showed and for the failure to report to the board. But like, I haven't seen any particularly credible proposals of how the board might be able to do that, especially given that like he's the CEO and there's no way this deal goes through unless he like agrees to it.
1: Right. And I think the the process of, like, trying to actually fire him for cause or something like that, like, they would just get them thrown into court and it would be a whole mess, like, the Les Moonves kind of experience at CBS. So better to just let him go with his $293 million. It's just – I mean, the company is already um, pushed out. I think the Wall Street Journal reported at least, like, 40 employees, right, have, have gone and been disciplined, but not the CEO. It's just – it kind of ties back to Peter's book honestly he's Bobby Kotick is not a Davos man but like he's got Davos man power here
2: Nadella is, and Nadella signed the Business Roundtable statement of a purpose of a corporation. Your Friedmanism is over. It's about stakeholders. Well, the fantastic thing about this—I mean, it's—it's it's not fantastic. It's really kind of horrifying. The the suffering of these women in this culture at Activision has effectively subsidized the shareholders of Satya Nadella's Microsoft because the suffering comes to light drives down the price of Activision. Microsoft sees a great way to fill up a, a, a hole in its portfolio and get into, into gaming. And they can buy this distressed asset at a cheap price because of these women who've suffered in this company. And the guy who's essentially responsible for the suffering, we know, thanks to The Wall Street Journal, you know, knew well and good what was going on, but took no action, shoved it under the carpet because it didn't have anything to do with selling video games. He's now, as you correctly know, Emily, going to walk out the door with a very sweet deal. You know, everybody wins except for the people who already lost.
0: Is this a bad deal or a good deal? Like, it seems to me that, you know, Matt Levine put it quite well in his newsletter. Like, if, if Facebook had bought Activision, everyone would be like, oh my God, the evil meta has gone and bought the evil activision and it's just going to be this axis of evil whereas if microsoft buys activision like you know you you have basically fall asleep before you reach the end of the first sentence and microsoft has this kind of deadening effect and and if anyone can sort of exorcise the ghosts of bobby kotick it's probably microsoft he, they can just incorporate all of these different bits and pieces into the microsoft borg and this will be good for the employees at activision it will be good for the microsoft shareholders you know it will be good for activision shareholders the one oh yeah the one question i wanted to ask was like this idea about microsoft sort of getting activision quote unquote on the cheap because the the share price has fallen after all of the revelations came out that's the one thing i might push back a little bit about that i think that we should take that fall in the share price seriously that it's a creative company the value of the company in here's in the creative output of its employees Um, these employees were obviously extremely badly treated and it was obviously a much worse run company than anyone had dared to imagine and i think that the revelations reduced the share price because it made the market realize that the company just really was a bad company and was uh, was not worth as much. I think that Microsoft is paying, obviously, a lot of money for this, but I don't think they're getting, I don't think this idea that they're getting it cheap kind of implies that it was, it had some kind of correct value before the revelations came out. And I don't think it did. I think it had an overinflated value before the revelations came out because the market didn't know how bad it was.
1: I think the point isn't that Microsoft's getting it cheap. It's more like Microsoft's getting it at all. Because according to the reporting, Microsoft had been trying to buy Activision before the scandal dropped. And it was the scandal dropping and the stock price dropping that made it possible. So it's not like Microsoft was like, now we can afford this company. It was more like, now the company will sell itself to us because they are desperate and struggling. You know what I mean? So it was the price that they were able to strike at. That's all
2: if if i may pull back very broadly i mean my book essentially argues that the billionaires are telling us that there are saviors and we can count on them to fix life's problems contrary to the lived experience of those of us who are not billionaires after the 2008 financial crisis we, we have economies crumbling, people thrown out of jobs, people losing homes. We see no accountability for the financial players who are actually responsible for the shenanigans, the tank, the real economy. And we've seen again through the crisis of the pandemic, yet this time we actually had real rescues for real people, expanded unemployment benefits in the States. Uh, we had all, all of these furlough programs in Europe. That was all very helpful. But most of the money was spent bolstering assets. When you bolster assets, that helps people who own assets. People can see that with their own eyes. And now if you're gonna zero in on Microsoft and Activision, you get a company that where a culture is, is horrible, uh, is predatory for women who, who are leaving, who are actually going public with horrible things. And the people running the company are cashing out. The company that now owns it is cashing out. It's just another indicator, I think, for ordinary people that the people running our economies are thinking about other things than the real needs and any, any kind of accountability, uh, the, the real needs of, of those of us who depend upon paychecks to, to pay our rent.
0: Hello, I'm Immy Harper. On the Slow Newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced.
2: I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people fractured me. I got
1: this and that. But I'm safe.
0: And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Talking of technology, I really and Emily sent me about eight emails. She's rolling her eyes. She's like, Felix, do we have to talk about this? And um, Peter didn't want to and, either. And Peter was like, "This is are we boring. talking about crypto? No, 5G. we're talking about five G. G. Oh no, we can talk about five G. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. I love this five G story because it really, to me, is the epitome of the weakness of the davos model and just to rewind the 5g story is that the u.s government sold off a bunch of 5g spectrum for 80 some billion dollars anyway it was a huge amount of money and then there was another thirteen billion got spent on on other on like building things
1: out. They could have just bought a video game company. With Exa- the 5G oh, exactly,
0: money. <laughs> like like exactly with the amount of money that that, that Verizon and AT and T spent on five G licenses, they could have bought Activision Blizzard, and then they would have got even worse. But the um, but yeah, instead they bought these five G licenses, which gave them the right to use that spectrum. And this was years ago, and. And as soon as this happened, everyone was like, okay, there's a problem here. A little bit of the electromagnetic spectrum that the 5G system uses is scarily close to the bit of the electromagnetic system that allows planes to land safely when it's foggy and there's bad visibility. We really don't want the 5G interfering with the radio altimeters. So we should do something about this. And so what they do is the classic Davos solution. What they do is they put together a multi-stakeholder committee of a whole bunch of aviation people and a whole bunch of telecoms people, and they go into the gnarliest, most awesome amounts of detail, and they create thousands of pages of technical specifications, and they're asking each each other all of these incredibly detailed questions. The telecoms people are asking the aviation people, tell me exactly about how these altimeters work. And the aviation people are asking the telecoms people, "Like, tell me exactly how much power you're putting into these radio antennas. And with, with, and the whole idea is they can work out where there could be any, any problems and work out... Um, how they might be able to fix those problems, except that didn't happen. After all of the paper flying back and forth, what happens is they wind up writing this letter to the U.S. government, basically saying, "Yeah, there may or may not be a problem, but there's nothing we're going to do about it." And then nothing happened until suddenly, like the you know Verizon and AT and T are going to switch on their five G networks and. All of the airlines say, well, okay, you can switch on your 5G networks, but we're going to have to cancel 15,000 flights because we can't fly if you if your 5G networks are on. And suddenly, like everyone's like, wait, really? And they're like, yeah, really. And you're like, "And it was such a fuck up. It was amazing.
1: But can we also explain why 5G matters? So it, as far as I can tell, it matters because it's going to power a lot of cool stuff, internet-y stuff. That doesn't exist yet, but might in the future. Like maybe whatever Microsoft does with its video games will, needs five G to actually happen, right? That, yeah, that's it's, like it's all
0: about it's it all for. about low latency. You get to do things quickly. It will help self driving cars. I'm you know I'm probably a I'm I'm a five G bear. Like I I don't think that five G is going to be nearly as transformative as the five G bulls think it is going to be. But clearly, AT&T and Verizon have invested $80 billion in it, so they think it's going to be a big deal. Whether it matters or not, the fact is that the network is now something that exists. And it's something that may or may not exist within like two miles of um, flight paths coming into airports. And someone needs to fix this. And the someone who needs to fix this is obviously and clearly and undeniably the US government, which controls... The Federal Aviation Authority and the Federal Communications Commission, the FAA and FCC, are both arms of the U.S. government, and they can work out what the safe and proper thing to do is. And there's no reason why that shouldn't happen. Except that the FAA and the FCC seem to hate each other and just can't agree on this shit. Th- this, by the way,
2: is fantastic for Davos man. Right, Davos man wins when there's uncertainty, dysfunction, and confusion. I mean, one of the things that Benioff said last year at Davos when he was saying that CEOs are the heroes of the pandemic, he said, and he was talking about you know vaccines and finance for staving off bankruptcy. And he said, "Listen, you know the government didn't save you." NGOs didn't save you. We saved you. And he added, I thought this was really wonderful. He said, he's said, not for profit, but to save the world. Well, if, if we can see to your point, Felix, that faced with the possibility that we're going to shut down air travel for huge numbers of people in some major air corridors, unless the federal government acts, and yet we immediately get into bureaucrats being, being bureaucrats and thinking about their turf. I don't know. This is reminiscent of... You know, something like four thousand years ago, when I was a telecom reporter in Washington, when we were still worrying about three G, they auctioned off licenses for what was then known, if if memory serves, as the channel sixty to sixty nine spectrum. These were still over the air television channels, and the FCC was prepared to they actually raised a lot of money licensing them off to all the big telecom providers. And there was some question about interference. With home appliances and what would happen to other TV signals. But that all got swept under the rug because the telecoms were so important and all anybody cared about at that point was wireless internet. Whereas this is two things that people, you know, these are two high stakes areas. I mean, if you shut down flights, we're going to notice that immediately and it's going to be a problem. And the fact that the government can't fix that, just underscores the point that the billionaires are already making. Just leave everything to us. That, that's how they get away with cutting taxes and well, doing no, it mean, like, constantly. But
0: the point is that the the private sector multi-stakeholder convention between the CEOs trying to fix it completely failed. And the reason the government needs to come in and fix it is because the private sector and the CEOs didn't fix it. And you know the way it's ultimately going to wind up getting fixed is almost certainly that... The telcos are just going to have to not have their 5G along fi- flight paths for the next five years or so, while the FAA goes through the process of basically reconfiguring all of the radio altimeters in all of the airplanes so that they can work alongside
2: 5G. I'll bet you dinner that Microsoft gets a contract to solve this at some point. <laughs> Cisco will get a piece of the action. Uh, don't don't weep for the telcos or the people. No, that you, you know with.
0: you know who's going to make money from this is McKinsey.
2: Oh, every which way,
0: yeah, every which way.
1: Oh, McKinsey, I think is making money from Peloton, which you said we could talk about in the plus. So,
0: oh yeah, 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 we're going to talk about Peloton in the plus. The 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 amazing story of Peloton going up and down. That's coming up in Slate Plus. But um, before that, we have a numbers round to get through. Um, Emily, do you have a number?
3: Yes,
1: I have a number. What's here. your number? Six point one two million. That is the number of existing homes that were sold in twenty twenty one which is a lot of houses, the highest number in 15 years. So since, since you know, the bubble and everything, um, because housing is crazy right now. There aren't enough houses to go around for everyone who wants them. Mortgage rates are ticking up a little bit, but doesn't seem to stop what's going on, which is prices are going way up and uh, supplies going way down. And at the same time, rents are going up. So it's sort of an interesting time for real estate
0: yeah this is going to really show up in inflation figures over the next 6 months or so because everyone looks at year-on-year inflation and we know what you know where where the prices were um in the first half of 2021 and we know how much they've come up and that's just going to really even if all of the used cars come down in price, which they probably won't, even if food and energy comes down in price, which it probably won't. Like, the the housing alone is going to keep inflation figures well above that 2% target. So the transitory is going to be very transitory.
1: Yeah, and the whole market is super interesting because it's like um – um there's all this movement out of big metro areas, messing up all these smaller housing markets where you used to be able to get affordable houses. But because like people like who lived in Brooklyn or Westchester are moving to these smaller markets, they're driving up prices there. So it's all like really weird and interesting. I don't know. Something yeah, there, aren't, there, are,
0: there aren't that many cheap cities outside, basically, Texas anymore. I'm going to come up with my number, which is 330 billion dollars that is the final tally that is how much money u.s startups raised in 2021 um which is which obliterates every previous record it is literally double what we had in 2020 which was 167 it's a complete record and it's not just the amount of money being raised that has hit like insane levels um the value of the exits of startups like getting acquired or going public was 774 billion dollars which is triple what we saw in 2020 the the vc slash startup world is en fuego right now and no one knows where it might end Aaron griffith had a great piece in the new york times about this talking about this wonderful thing called the reverse pitch where instead of um instead of companies going up to vcs and saying we have a good company can you please give us money it's now the other way around where vcs go up to companies and said say like we have done a whole bunch of um due diligence on you without you even asking you and here's a 90 page proposal about why you should let us invest in your company that's amazing that's That's how that's how vc works now (laughs) (laughs) that's how tiger gets the
2: deals peter what's your number My number, somewhat related to Emily's number, $300 million. That's the amount of money that Steve Schwartzman's Blackstone has spent just in the last few weeks buying up affordable housing in South Florida. Now, Blackstone made a fortune after the foreclosure crisis. Uh, They bought up huge numbers of single-family homes in all the Sunbelt, hard-hit places. Uh, Blackstone, A la Davos man said this was just an act of civic virtue. You know, we we took these homes with their overgrown lawns and rodent infestations and fixed them up and put families in the... You could almost hear the soundtrack, you know, for a life insurance commercial with the golden retriever puppy romping around on a lawn with a toddler... Uh, Of course, the reality was he launched uh, Invitation Homes to run this portfolio. And a lot of reporting has shown that Invitation invited tenants to pay much higher rents uh, while uh, looking for customer service on uh, websites that never got back to anybody, jacked up rents, and uh, kicked a lot of people out when they couldn't pay. That's a template that Blackstone has applied in in Europe uh, and in other parts of the world. Well, now the new model is rent uh, to own, uh, where they give people these leases that are supposed to be getting them on the path to home ownership. And the early returns on that are are that the terms are set such that it's really very difficult for most people to get anywhere close to home ownership and people are giving up mid-stride but Schwartzman is back in the game because he's got a nose for money. I am a big
0: fan of anyone who's turning owner-occupied housing into rental housing. I think we need a lot more rental housing, but we have had this conversation too many times on Slate Money, and we are not going to revisit that. I think that's it for the main show. Thanks, Peter, for coming on. It's been awesome having you. Thank you for having me do stick around for the slate plus on peloton many thanks for all of you guys for listening and sending in your emails slate at slate.com and many thanks especially to shane and roth who's managed to put this show together amazingly as ever uh we will be back next week with another episode of slate money